Let's open our Bibles. John 19 today, if you have an app and you want to open that up, it'll be on the screen. Uh, if, you, if your app is really slow or something, uh, John 19 records the story of Jesus at the very, very end. And the Gospel of John is written by a guy named John who was Jesus' best friend uh, when he was on this earth uh, and one of Jesus' disciples. The inner, like John was disciple number one and he was part of an inner circle of John and his brother James and Peter and all three of them became uh, significant leaders in the very, very early church. And then there was the 12 disciples, and then there was around 100 and some people who kind of were extra committed to Jesus. And then beyond that, there was uh, thousands and thousands. In fact, at the very beginning of Jesus's ministry, uh, Jesus had, like, Jesus walked around as a rabbi. And in their culture, that's kind of a traveling religious teacher or a traveling religious preacher. And when he walked around, he would heal people. Uh, from illnesses, which was amazing. So, of course, you're going to go at the very base level. It's free health care, right? And you could do things that other doctors couldn't do. And the Bible talks about that, that the people had seen every doctor, and then they go to Jesus, right? Uh, although if Jesus was a bill today, it would not get through Congress and the Senate, but whatever. Uh, <laughs> so Jesus gave this free health care. And then he also had like a great uh, food program uh, where you would go see Jesus, and there'd be thousands of people, and he would feed them all. And uh, that was kind of an exciting moment, you know, thousands of people, and we're all eating because Jesus provided uh, food for us. Uh, at the height of Jesus' ministry, we, we read in the Bible that there were two different times where Jesus had these large crowds and they're numbered, and one had 5,000 and one had 4,000, and they only counted the men in that day. They only, because of their culture, they didn't count the women or the children uh, who would have happened to be there. It was just the way that they did things. And uh, uh, so there were 5,000 men and 4,000 men, plus uh, presumably their families would be there. So as many as 10 or 15,000 people uh, would have been at these events where Jesus was teaching. Uh, to say that Jesus was a successful teacher is kind of an understatement. Like Jesus was walking around the countryside and people would just sit on a grassy hill and at numbers of ten or 15,000 to listen to Jesus. No electricity, like no amplification. Uh, they would just want to be close to this guy who was teaching things. I've had, uh, I'm getting over being sick, so I'm going to drink a couple times. Um, the, uh, Jesus has these huge crowds, wildly successful ministry that Jesus is doing while he's on this earth. Uh, plus, his ministry, like in total, is only around three years. And two years into this, uh, Jesus has these crowds of 10, 12, 15,000. If you imagine starting a church, kind of like how we, seven and a half years ago, we started the Grove. And in year two, you have around 15,000, and all you do is stand there and talk about things. You don't, you don't even have uncomfortable metal chairs. You don't have a killer kids ministry or a setup or a microphone that goes on your face and makes you feel like Michael Jackson. You, you don't, you're just going out there and saying things that the Bible teaches and thousands of people are showing up. Like to be a disciple at this moment would have been the best. Like you cast your lot with this rabbi. You're like, I'm going to follow this rabbi. He let me follow him. And this rabbi is blowing up. 
And you're like right-hand man to this disciple. You're like, this is going well. Things like my life is on the uptick. Like I got in with the right company. Like it is a good deal to be a disciple of Jesus at these times, right? Besides the free health care and free food. Like there were benefits to being a follower of Jesus. And he was turning water into wine. It's only recorded once, but you got to assume, right? Uh, like you don't got to assume, but I do, <laughs> That over and over, Jesus would just do that as a party favor. But anyways, that is heresy. I'm pretty sure that's heresy, so don't listen to that. Um, But Jesus was uh, going around teaching, and the disciples are in this this, this amazing circus of ministry that's happening. And then Jesus started saying things that were kind of offensive. And by kind of, I mean really offensive. Jesus started calling out the sins of the religious leaders. And not just like calling them out like, hey guys, we probably need to do this better. He would call them like as close to cussing insults as you can get, Jesus would pull those things off when talking about the religious authorities among the Jewish people. And because Jesus is God, he was correct. He wasn't out of line. He was doing and saying the very words of God. He never said anything that God didn't tell him to say. His mind was God's mind. But Jesus, he called them, and in their words, he would call them like a, a brood of vipers, right? To us, that's like, oh, yes, that's a big insult. But to, to call them like a pile of snakes uh, is rather insulting in their culture. Uh, and, and he would call them like whitewashed tombs, like they're just uh, dead bodies with a nice gravestone on top to make it look like underneath here isn't just a dead body. And, and, and the insults to them were like that you're all just show up here, but you don't actually care about people. You don't actually have it in your heart. And Jesus started undercutting the authorities. Then Jesus started uh, letting people go around saying, Jesus is Lord which the is Lord is a statement politically in their culture towards the Roman Caesar, they would say Caesar is Lord. And that would be a common saying. The same way everybody finishes a speech in politics today with God bless America, you would end that, that kind of colloquial phrase. Everybody says God bless America. It's an acceptable thing to say. And Caesar is Lord would be an acceptable thing to say. And Jesus is over here saying... God bless Canada. What? They already are blessed. They're our neighbors, right? Which is kind of true. But uh, there, there is, if you're here for the first time, I'm, I'm here on a green card and I'm from Canada, so I'm allowed to make fun of them. You're not, all right? When, when Jesus starts throwing out these, these statements, he starts riling up the religious and the political authorities who start what ends up being a long plot. It's about a year, if you read through the scripture, where they have this plan to kill Jesus because they can't get rid of him. The people love him. And why wouldn't they? And the people who have the power and the authority are trying to figure out how do we get rid of this guy? We can't move him away. We can't discredit him because we ask him questions and he's smarter than us so we have to get rid of him and as jesus is going around there becomes to be pressure and we see the crowds that follow jesus dwindling 
and less people are down with Jesus as they maybe start hearing the authorities that they trust saying things about Jesus that are negative or undercutting Jesus a little bit. I can't imagine, like, I know Jesus is perfect and stuff, but if he has emotions, Jesus came to earth as a Jewish person to save the Jewish people initially and then from there to spread his message to all people. But on earth, Jesus has times where he specifically says, I am here for this. And the authorities and the people in that group slowly reject Jesus. Like the emotional pain, and you've, I know you've experienced this, of when you are committed to someone and they slowly reject you and outright just turn away from you. It's painful. And Jesus experiences this pain and this rejection to the point where on his last night on earth, a Thursday night, Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples and one of his disciples has already gone, like his disciples, the 12 guys that he picked, and his ministry kind of rode this wave, and now it was kind of going downhill, and Jesus' ministry wasn't as big as it used to be, but his focus has changed from these big crowds to these individual people, and he's talking to the disciples, and one of them has actually taken a bribe from the authorities to turn Jesus over. It's Judas. Judas was in charge of the money. Never trust the guy in charge of the money if his name is Judas. <laughs> no offense to Judases here. I don't know what your parents were thinking. But, and, and don't become an accountant. Just don't. But Judas was in charge of the money. And Jesus started being frivolous with the money. He allowed people to bless him in ways and uh, like he was anointed with this uh, like perfume that he was anointed with his perfume in a story in the scripture that cost a year's wages. We're talking 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80,000 dollars you would spend on a jar of perfume and someone decided to pour it on Jesus. And Judas is like, do you know how many homeless people we could have fed? And people are hungry, Jesus. Come on. Judas was, Judas was the guy who posts like the meme of the starving kid when you complain about your meal at a restaurant, right? You get on social media and you're like, oh, my eggs were cold. And then they post the meme of that kid. Oh, I'm sorry. You know, 30,000 people died of hunger and hunger-related diseases today. Thanks, Judas. <laughs> I'm kind of throwing all those people under the bus. I think it's hilarious, but... Uh, there was a time in my life when I taught youth group Sunday school and the teenagers uh, notoriously have a hard time getting up and so we started calling them uh, from Sunday school class. We'd call the teenagers and we stopped that when we woke up one of their dads and he was not appreciative of this. But we would call them and ask them if they were happy that Jesus woke up early the day he died for their sins on the cross. So I understand, this is pre-internet, so I understand, well, pre-the internet being so fun, I, uh, I understand the funny guilt that goes into that, but, but Judas throws this stuff out, and Judas betrays Jesus. Jesus is arrested, he's given an illegal trial, he's handed over to be crucified, he's tortured and beaten, 
and he's hanging on the cross. He's actually hanging on the cross naked. In the Gospel of John, they record to fulfill the Scripture, uh, they actually divided up his clothes, except for his main tunic was woven out of one piece, and so they uh, cast lots. They like, uh, like drow straws. Uh, for to decide, decide which soldier got his clothes. So Jesus' family didn't even get his personal effects. The soldiers took them. And then there's this, uh, which we'll read on the screen, this very, very last story, verses 25, 26, and 27. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother. And his mother's not named in the Gospel of John, probably to avoid some confusion, because his mother's name is Mary, which seemed to be a common name because everyone else at the cross is also named Mary. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene, meaning Mary from a town called Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother there, and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Jesus is at the cross, and it depends how you read the commas in the original language. There's three or four women there. His mother, his mother's sister, and his mother's sister may, may be Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. It may be, uh, his mother's sister might be someone else named Salome, uh, depending on how you understand things. So there's three or four women there, said at least 75% of them named Mary. <laughs> That's how you knew Jesus was Catholic. But they... <laughs> I also grew up Catholic, so I'm allowed to do that as well. And my mom's name is Mary Ann. So... <sighs> Jesus is standing, is there at the cross, and there's three women who are related to him, and Mary Magdalene, who was committed to his ministry and supported his ministry financially, and one disciple. One disciple. 15,000, 12,000, 10,000. 120 people that are committed. 12 disciples, one of whom is a turncoat. But at his cross, you've got one. There's a lot of physical pain going on in Jesus' life at this moment. Uh, they actually have, um, they offer Jesus a sedative that would dull the pain, and Jesus actually refuses it. And so he's experiencing the cross full on. And yet the emotional pain that Jesus has got to be feeling, the betrayal that Jesus has got to be feeling, in that all these people that said they were committed to Jesus have dis disappeared. I know in my life, I can tell you the people who were committed to me and then disappeared, or who I was committed to and then disappeared. I can tell you because I notice because it's painful, and so do you. You remember those things. The coworker who was kind of unethical towards you, or the family member who kind of rejected your love or your investment, or maybe you're a coach and there was a player who you invested in, or you're a teacher and there's a student 
who you cared for and they took a turn a way that you really didn't advise. And to be at the end of Jesus' ministry and to have one disciple there, this sounds like heresy too, but if I'm Jesus in this moment, I'm not thinking about how great it is that John's there. I'm thinking of how much of a jerk the other guys are. Like, I hate Judas. And I know you're not allowed to hate, but God, it says in the Bible, God hates things. And so Jesus, if I was Jesus, and thank the Lord I'm not, join me in thanking the Lord I'm not. But I would probably be thinking of how much of a jerk Judas is. I would probably be thinking of how much of a loser Peter is for denying that he even knows me. Peter, who I'm committed to. Peter, who is not very good at just like making decisions in general. And I'm committed to him. And where is he? Like this is the time I hurt. And where is he? I think this goes into line with this thought pattern that that I have and that you have, that a lot of the time we fail to notice who is there because of who isn't there. We start to forget who is committed to us because we're so focused on who isn't committed to us. We're focused on the ones who bailed on us in our time of need. And it impairs our ability to appreciate the people who are standing right beside us. This is why Jesus is amazing. At that moment when thousands of people and his disciples who were closest to him, but thousands of people have completely turned on Jesus. A week before Jesus died on the cross, he marched into town in this like crazy parade where people were waving things. It's called Palm Sunday. If you went to like a more orthodox kind of Sunday schoolish kind of church, there was the Sunday when they gave you a palm branch and you brought it home. You didn't know why, but it sure was fun to hit your siblings with it. And, uh, but it's Palm Sunday and everybody's partying and Jesus is here and Jesus is here. And a week later, there's another parade and people are jeering Jesus as he carries his cross back out of town. He comes in with a party welcome in, and he leaves with a celebration of his death. Like if there's a guy who has a reason to be upset with people bailing on him, it's Jesus. And Jesus has this ability to focus on why people are here instead of focusing on why people aren't here. This ability to focus on why people keep coming back to him instead of a focus on why people are leaving. And so on the cross, Jesus is able to look down and see his mother and care for his mother by asking John, who may have been related, if depends on who the Mary, the sister is, it may have been like a cousin of Jesus, maybe not, depends on what you do with that comma. But Jesus' best friend in the world, John, takes in his mother and cares for him. This also means that Jesus' dad was, like, everybody believes this, everybody agrees, but his dad had passed away by this point. And his mom was alone. But Jesus had multiple younger brothers and sisters. He was the oldest, because Mary was a virgin when he was born. 
but it's recorded in the scripture that he had brothers and sisters. And there are those who need to, for their theological sake, carry on a perpetual virginity of Mary, which is completely unbiblical, but it's a great time, but completely unbiblical, uh, than say that they were stepbrothers, that they were Joseph's kids. And so Joseph's kids weren't taking care of Mary because they were Joseph's kids, not Mary's kids. That's completely unbiblical. It's wrong. Uh, I'm disagreeing with the Pope, but whatever. Uh, but the uh, when... Jesus asked John to take care of his mother, he's actually saying that he's not just abandoned by his followers, he's abandoned by his younger siblings who would normally and naturally take care of their mother when the oldest child was, had passed away. And so Jesus isn't just abandoned by all his followers, he's abandoned by all his siblings as well. Like to, If there is a feeling of being alone that you have felt, Jesus has been there and Jesus has experienced it, and he experienced it at the worst possible time. And yet, in those moments, Jesus is able to focus on who is here. He says nothing about the thousands and the disciples who would be at least ten. One of them is a lost cause, Judas. But the ten other ones who weren't there, Jesus is able to not focus on who isn't there. And he's able to focus on John, who is there, and his mother, and the other Mary, and the other Mary, Mary Magdalene, and Mary the wife of Clopas. Jesus somehow isn't overwhelmed by the pain that he feels. Which doesn't mean the pain isn't real. Like there's a school of Christianity that says like to take that, take that, pain that you feel, that emotional hurt that you have, and just put it away and don't talk about it and shove it away. There's another school that says, let it define you. Like, let your hurts define you. I'm a broken person. But Jesus actually heals the hurt. He acknowledges it and names it and owns it. He doesn't hide it, but he also doesn't let it define him because he moves forward into what God has for him. This spring, as part of what I was talking about, that 400 stories initiatives this spring, we did a lot of work on developing. We have a thing called a vision frame for our church with new values and mission statements and goals and those kinds of things. A church is seven years old. We're kind of getting into a second cycle of our church's life, and there's cool new things happening. And, and in that, what I, I listen to podcasts, uh, a lot when I'm doing dishes and stuff and, and I have a little wipe off board. I actually bought it for my wife but she can't use it now because there's scribblings all over it from me. But I listen to podcasts by other pastors and other leaders and one of them I was listening to, it's a Vanderblumen leadership podcast and it has interviewing somebody I don't even remember who talked about uh, there's a temptation to focus on as a church to focus on the people who aren't here and then you lose the focus on why people are here. I think that happens, like I think that's not just true in a church life, I think that's true in our lives. And we start to focus on why people reject us, we're losing sight of why people love us. Because everyone who thinks they're alone has allowed 
a negative statement to override a real positive statement that's happening. Or they've allowed jealousy of someone else's situation or a fear of missing out of something else to override the greatness that they have here. Here's what it looks like in my life. I have pastor friends who are awesome. Like, they're awesome. Like, awesome. Like, if their church was closer, you should go there, not here. But it's far away, so stay here, please. Because <laughs> I have emotional baggage. But, but they're awesome. And they preach, and like, everybody gets saved every week. It's incredible. Theologically, it's a train wreck, but it's incredible. <laughs> and sometimes I, I follow those pastor friends on social media, and, you know, they're like famous and write books, and, you know, they're amazing. They're not actually my friends. <laughs> but sometimes I have to hide them because I see them, and I go, why aren't I awesome? Like, why aren't I? I wish I was good at this. I wish, I, I wish, like, there would be one or two people who would go to my church. And I forget, there's hundreds of us. And so I, in my life, because I'm a weak-minded person, I hide them on my, there's a little hide button on Facebook, and I hide basically everyone that's not in, living in my house. Uh, but I, I, you just, I hide those people for a while because it's not healthy for me, not because of them, because of me, because I need to work on myself so that I'm not jealous of something else because I'm so focused on what I don't have that I lose track of what I do have. I watch Joel Osteen and all I want is that spinning dang globe, right? <laughs> this is just stupid. I bring this up all the time. But someday we're going to do a building campaign and you better believe we're going to have a globe. I'm going to spray paint it gold and while I'm preaching I'm going to spin it. <laughs> and you invite your friends and be like, I don't know what he's doing. It's some kind of nervous tick. But, <laughs> but there is, in, in my life and in your life, these things happen where you start to focus on what you don't have or you start to focus on who you don't have. And what Jesus does for us in this moment is say, look who is here. And I mean, he's on the cross If, in all of the circumstances, in all of the difficulties that you have, you're not on the cross bearing the weight of the sins of humanity and he cares for these people. I didn't put this on the screen, but I want to read this next sentence to you. This is verse 28. Jesus says this. Uh, oh, sorry. <laughs> this, John says this. Later, so after Jesus takes care of his mom and gets John to bring her into his home and takes care of the people who are there, Later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I'm thirsty. And they gave him a drink and a sponge. And when, they had received, when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The last thing Jesus does on the cross is say, it is finished. The second last thing Jesus does is ask for a drink so that he can get some water in his throat so he can say it is finished. And the reason that he's able to say it's finished is because just before that, Jesus took care of the people who were there. The last thing that Jesus does in his life, besides say it's over now, is take care of the people who are committed to him. 
When we talk about Easter, it's an invitation for you to be drawn to the cross and to be there. Because at the cross, no matter what kind of gaps or what kind of emptiness that you're experiencing in your life, at that cross, Jesus takes care of the littlest details in your life and creates a sense of wholeness and completeness with an ignoring of everything that's away from the cross. The invitation, I think the invitation of the cross, I think the invitation of this sermon is for you not to back off on Jesus, but to actually move closer into the suffering and the death of Jesus, your understanding of it, your emotional realization of it, your spiritual absorption of what's happening on that cross. And I know that might sound hokey because you can't actually physically go to a cross, but you're invited to actually go to the cross. The invitation, I think, of Easter, and the reason we do this every year, is because we're able to draw near to Jesus and be reminded of our need to be drawn near to Jesus or else we'll suffer that fear of missing out on something or somebody that everywhere else has. So we're going to worship together today and then we're going to come together next weekend and and then we've got this Good Friday and this Easter service. And the whole design is for you to be engaged and drawn in towards Jesus. To be close to his heart, to his will, to his mind, and to his energy in your life. To have his spirit in a very real way reside in you, in the deepest parts of you. So it becomes a reality in your life. So that Jesus sees who you are and where you are and cares for you in the same way he cared for the, the man and the woman who were at his cross. Let me pray for us in that way, all right? Let's stand and I'll pray for us in that way. Our God, we turn to you uh, this morning, in this moment, and we ask that you would draw us close to your cross. When I talk about the hurts that all of us have experienced, it's not difficult and it's not hard to find those. We remember for a long time the things that people said, the things that people did, the opportunities that we didn't get to take advantage of, the gifts that we wish we were blessed with, but we just are not. God, free us from everything that's far from your cross this morning. Free us from that pain. Free us from that shame, from that hurt, and from that fear. But God, not in a mystical, magic, oh, now everything's better way, but in a way that draws us to your cross in an appreciation of your sacrifice and your suffering and your death because it enabled your resurrection, which actually enables us to live in you. Cause us to live by your spirit and your will 
with your spirit residing in us so that the energy of God is in us. And the gospel of God actually shines out through us because of our proximity to Jesus. Forgive us for the times, Lord, when we reject you, when we're the ones who are far from the cross, when we're the ones who abandon you and your ways and choose something else that's more comfortable or less scary or less <laughs> requiring of faith and risk. Forgive us, but empower us to not walk that path any longer. Empower us to walk with you in your will and in your ways by your cross, by your grace in taking on our sin, and by your resurrection through which nothing can separate us from the love of God. We pray this. Amen.